Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a few minutes will be Peter Salmon, and he will take us, uh, or he will join us rather, as uh, part of this week's show to do the review. It is um, summertime, so uh, not to freak anyone out, but uh, the the show is going to be taking a break in a couple of weeks. A two-week break so that we might all enjoy some summer sunshine. Or, more likely, uh, enjoy going back to the movie theater. I I was finally double-vaxxed last week, which means I have one more week, and uh, I will feel very comfortable indeed going back to the movie theater. Although, I, I, I did go to the movie theater a couple of times last fall when it was open briefly, so... Um, long story short, feeling pretty good about going back to the movie theater soon. In the meantime, End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new family, sort of, action shoot 'em up Gunpowder Milkshake, which you can now stream on the Netflix. And we took a break last week to uh, cover some some news it was a pretty news heavy week with uh especially with the passing of, of richard donner and robert downey senior but we're gonna get back on the proverbial horse to talk about summer movies of the past and uh boy what a what a season to um to pick up on the summer of 1993 uh, a lot of big movies that summer a lot of interesting movies too a lot of movies that perhaps bombed but are interesting just the same a couple of kind of i guess last gasps of a certain kind of of filmmaker who after this summer didn't really do anything too terribly interesting but um we're gonna get to all that so we will begin with actually one of those filmmakers ivan reitman who on may 7th they released dave which i I hate to say it, but it is kind of like his last really great film. Well, it might not be his last. He's still alive and making movies. But um, just in terms of like capturing like a, a sense of American optimism and politics can work, kind of like a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington uh, vibe, <laughs> um, it, Dave really captures that very, very well. It, it's a story about a presidential impersonator who looks uncannily almost exactly like the president who has to step into the role as president when um, a medical emergency happens. Uh, it, it's, it, it has the kind of like the late 80s, early 90s sort of political um, setting written all over it with like SL, SLM scandals and, um, <laughs> uh, you know, conspiracy theories. And Oliver Stone, Frank, uh, has a cameo on it as well. But it is unabashedly optimistic about the political system and the political experience. And, uh, I think, I think people should, more people should watch Dave. Um, that same weekend we get Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which is, uh, directed by Rob Cohen, who would later go on to make the fast, the first Fast and the Furious movie and the first Triple X movie. Um, also Dragon, one of the Dragon movies, I think. Dragon Heart, I want to say. But, um, yeah, so it, it, it's interesting because you also get Jason Scott Lee in this, um, also a, a young Asian-American actor who was coming up at the time. Um, it's rare to get like biopics of this quality about 
um, actors like Bruce Lee, um, back in the 90s anyway, you know, these pioneering actors who who really didn't get their due in life and did did get some regard um, through biopics like Dragon and the Bruce Lee story. And it's not bad, actually. Still pretty good. Um, Also, that weekend is uh, my neighbor Totoro which is uh Ayo Miyazaki movie, perhaps one of his most memorable ones because it's the one with the cat bus. So <laughs> a lot of really great character designs and it's it's really sort of typical of uh Miyazaki's aesthetic um and and definitely one of his best. So we fast forward a bit to May 21st. We get Hot Shots Part 2, which is actually the not too bad sequel to Hot Shots, even though Hot Shots was you know, clearly a parody of Top Gun. Uh, at the time, there was no Top Gun 2 to base uh, a second parody on, but uh, Hot, Hot Shots Part 2 um, persisted nonetheless. <laughs> um, again, very much of the times, because there's a very infamous scene from the trailer uh, that was also at the beginning of the movie where... Um, Saddam Hussein is lounging by a pool when a a, a bomb falls on him. Um, it's a dud, of course. The gag is that he gets smushed by a dud bomb. But uh, hard to make that joke now. Um, on that same weekend, we also get uh, Sliver, which is directed by Philip Noyce. Um, but it was written by Joe Esterhouse, the guy who wrote Basic Instinct and who would later go on to write Showgirls. And this is kind of like very peak Esterhouse. Um, these kind of, like, sexual, psychosexual romps. Uh, famously, the film, which I don't think makes a lick of sense when you watch it, it's very stolid, it's very cold. And I think that largely has to do with the fact, apparently, William Baldwin and Sharon Stone didn't like each other too much. Um, but... Somewhat famously, in order to avoid an X rating, Sliver had to reshoot the ending, which uh, made the killer uh, an entirely new person. So uh, a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the clues laid out in the first I don't know ninety percent of the film don't make a lot of sense by the time you get to the end. But uh, hey, that's Hollywood filmmaking. Uh, to end the month of May, we get Menace to Society which is part of this new great uh, wave of new black filmmakers in the 90s. It's the first film by the Hughes brothers, um, who unfortunately haven't had the robust career one might have thought after seeing Menace to Society. Um, but it is very much of a piece with, like, um, Boys in the Hood and, like, New Jack City and, and these kinds of, of films where um, black voices were being amplified at the time. Oh, uh, there's one more weekend. Um, <laughs> you get May 28th, you get Cliffhanger, great Stallone action movie. He actually co-wrote the film. Uh, also, you get John Lithgow as a really great sort of scenery-chewing villain in that, which I appreciate. Um, on that same weekend, you get Made in America, which is perhaps most famous. I mean, it's it's early Will Smith, uh, one of the first films he was ever in, so you get that angle. But it was also very famous at the time because... Um, Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson then started dating um, because of the, they both worked on this movie together. And there's an, if I'm remembering correctly, there was kind of this infamous thing where Ted Danson showed up somewhere in blackface. He may not want 
me to remember that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it was it was also kind of notable at the time because it was Ted Danson's first big thing to come out after um, Cheers. Cheers ended that same May. Um, and the Super Mario Brothers movie, yes, the first video game adaptation. Notice I didn't say the first great video game adaptation because it's not great. Um, it's this like weirdo world that like none of it makes a lot. Like if you come out of Super Mario video games, um, then go into this movie and it's like this, um, unyieldy urban hellscape that would not be outside of, <laughs> of, of, uh, the realm of something like Blade Runner, except, uh, some people have lizard faces. Um, also it's, you know, you have the very English Bob Hoskins as Mario and, uh, John Leguizamo as Luigi. Um, very hard to believe those two are brothers, but I digress. We have to move on. Um, on June 11th, we get the big movie of the summer of 93, which is, of course, Jurassic Park. Broke a lot of box office records. Um, once again, re-cemented Steven Spielberg's status as a fantasy filmmaker extraordinaire. Um, I was also rewatching the Spielberg documentary on HBO over the weekend. It was just randomly on TV, and it's you know it's important to note that 93 was a very weird year for Spielberg because he went and made Jurassic Park, and while Jurassic Park was in post... Um, he was supervising that while also shooting Schindler's List. So um, I believe it's David Kep, the the screenwriter, who who notes in that doc that in in one year period you have um, Steven Spielberg putting all his uh, you know his, his eggs as a big box office fantasy filmmaker on Seachy Dinosaurs, which this was the first time that would really come to fruition. On Jurassic Park, and then he, he's also putting all his eggs on Schindler's List, this massive film about the Holocaust being shot in black and white, would ultimately go on and win him several Academy Awards, but um, these things are never really guaranteed. On June 18th, uh, another kind of bold movie, but did not turn out so good. Last Action Hero, um, this was like Shane Black's big comeback uh, as a screenwriter. Uh, like, a lot of money was spent on his spec script for this. Um, I believe record-setting at the time. But it was also meant to be uh, uh, reteaming Arnold Schwarzenegger and John McTiernan, who last worked on Predator together, if I'm remembering correctly. I don't think they worked on something in between. But it's just, it's it's meta, it's silly at times. Uh, like, Schwarzenegger's kind of, like, deconstructing his um, his his media image at that point. And there are a lot of really <laughs> kind of weird and crazy cameos. Um, a lot of winking at the camera. It doesn't all necessarily work, but it is profoundly interesting looking back at it. Um, that this is what Arnold Schwarzenegger would put his like post-Terminator 2 chips on was making Last Action Hero. Also famous for being one of the last appearances of Art Carney. Also kind of famous for... Way before the deep fake, um, casting Stallone as the Terminator in one meta scene. Anyway, on June twenty fifth, we get Dennis the Menace, which is um, based on the comic strip, a script written by John Hughes, starring Walter Matthau as Mister Wilson. Um, repeated gags of uh, highly distinguished and dignified actor Walter Matthau getting hit in the nuts. 
so you don't miss much there. You also get Sleeping in Seattle, the Nora Ephron movie that first teamed up Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Still a rom-com classic, if we can use that expression. And then you also get What's Love Got to Do With It, another great biopic. Um, this one about, obviously, Tina Turner. Famously, Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne both got Oscar nominations for playing Tina and Ike Turner. Uh, I don't believe they won, though, um, which is probably a travesty because I can't remember the last time Lawrence Fishburne got an Oscar nomination. But probably a little bit ahead of its time, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's, um, it's a really compelling biopic still. On July 2nd, we get The Firm, which is one of these uh, John Grisham adaptations, one of Tom Cruise's lesser blockbusters. Still a blockbuster. On that same weekend, you also get Son-in-Law, one of Pauly Shore's lesser hits, but still one of his hits. We are still sort of at the, if we're not at the peak of Pauly Shore mania, we are certainly um, almost there by the time we get to Son-in-Law. Uh, the next weekend, we get Weekend at Bernie's 2. Um, I don't think I've ever seen it, probably because of the gross illogic of like how this dead body people would still be buying that this person this dead body was like still a real person that seemed like they were really pushing um credulity with that um but you also get in the line of fire which is this great uh Clint Eastwood movie he didn't direct but he stars where he faces off against John Malkovich uh, who's a presidential planning a presidential assassination and Clint Eastwood is the aged secret service agent who's trying to stop him you also get Rookie of the Year, which is kind of fun. It's this fun movie about a kid who breaks his arm and it heals weird so he can throw fastballs and he gets drafted to the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Daniel Stern directed it, uh, famous one of the for being one of the wet bandits in the Home Alone movie. Uh, and he also co-stars. He has a, a role as, I think he plays the pitching coach, if I remember correctly. But like I said, it's a small movie. It's a fun movie. Uh, next we, ooh, we're running out of time here, so we're only in July. July 16th, we get Free Willy. Um, <laughs> it, I don't know, I'm not sure if it was prescient or not, because it is about setting a whale, an orca whale free. It, like, Marineland has been back in the news lately about, uh, the way it treats some of its, um, animals. And then we get, um... Hocus Pocus that same weekend. It's interesting to note that, you know, they're planning some sort of Hocus Pocus continuation reboot or something um, in the near future. Um, they're bringing back Bette Midler, uh, Kathy and Jimmy, and Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, interesting to note that Mick Garris, the horror filmmaker behind Nightmare Cinema, um, Riding the Bullet, and Sleepwalkers, he co-wrote the screenplay to Hocus Pocus. Hmm. So it takes all kinds. On July 23rd, we get the Coneheads adaptation, which, I mean, this seems like something that could come out tomorrow. Just, it's, it seems so, like, morally, not morally bankrupt, but creatively bankrupt. This, um, this sketch that was popular on Saturday Night Live, like, 20 years prior, uh, being turned into a major motion picture. That does seem like something. I mean, although now it would probably be like a Peacock series or something on Hulu. Um, you also get Poetic Justice. Speaking of great black filmmakers, John Singleton's, I believe it's his second film, a really beautiful romantic story um, that stars Janet Jackson and Tupac Shakur. 
um, really grounded, really engaging. They are two very good actors in that movie. Uh, you also on on uh, July twenty eighth you get Robin Hood Men in Tights. Probably the last time Mel Brooks has been really really good. Um, you get So I Married an Axe Murderer, which um, uh, Mike Myers before he figured out his his shtick um, that came and went. I do want to highlight before we we throw to break. The Fugitive came out on August sixth, um, and then uh, I guess that's. I mean, Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, notable for what for for kicking off the whole idea about doing a Jason versus Freddy, because at the end of that movie, Freddy's hand comes up and drags Jason's mask into the dirt. Speaking of uh, getting into the dirt, we got to get into the review, and uh, we're just going to throw it to someone who will be soon appearing at Hillside Homeside, Nathan Lahr. And, uh, and after we, we do that, we will come back with our review of Gunpowder Milkshake. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your broken lovely young lady wants to open an account with us. Well, Madeline should have told you that we don't accept new readers without a reference. Madeline had a hunch. Fudge your hunches, if you pardon my French. Technically not French. Always literal? Of course I'm literary, I'm a librarian. Yeah, be that as it may. Florence, dear, would you join us? I'm afraid we need a tiebreaker. Madeline thinks this girl needs to do some reading. Well, I told you I had a hunch. There's something very familiar about her. Hunch smudge. I, on the other hand, think we should dispose of the body and then have a long talk about our onboarding protocols. You know, I can hear you, right? Hush, girl. Don't be rude. And that was a clip from Gunpowder Milkshake. It's the new film from Navat Papashado, and it stars Karen Gillan, Lena Headey, Chloe Coleman, Carla Gugino, Angela Bassett, Michelle Yeoh, and Paul Giamatti. All right, well, I am now being joined on the line by the one and only Peter Salmon. Peter, how are you? Doing good, doing good. I'm in Ottawa now, but still thinking about you, Guelph. I'll always have you on my mind, and I hope you're doing good. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because I was I was totally going to bring you up and bring it up and call you a traitor for yeah well <laughs> abandoning Guelph yeah yeah we're, 20, we're, uh, 26 years yeah we were going to totally have like a uh, like an intervention I mean if we, <laughs> if, if we could meet in real life we would have that intervention and you know and uh, you know you got to go back to the royal city. This this would be an entirely different conversation, but uh, things change. And, yeah, uh, exactly. 
Well, and credits is going to get more of a wide provincial look at uh, film. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I'm not sure we can promise that. But anyway, <laughs> our, especially since we're reviewing stuff that's on Netflix. Uh, and this week we're reviewing Gunpowder Milkshake, which uh, I believe just came out on Netflix. So, Peter, uh, yeah, a couple days ago. other than the title, what made you want to visit Gunpowder Milkshake? Um, <laughs> I just, I mean, the, the title itself, you know, how how does the gunpowder mix with the milkshake, right? It's, I just I couldn't fathom it. I wanted to understand. I wanted to understand that. It's like when people like math and stuff see like an equation and like, they don't get it and then they want to get it. So yeah, it was like that with the title, and then also I will admit, uh, Angela Bassett pulled me in. She's she's great. I don't I don't really, I'm not super. I'm like aware of them, but I don't really watch. Other than Lee Heaney, I don't watch uh, much that the main character Karen Gillan's in. But yeah, I saw Angela Bassett, and it really pulled me in. And uh, and Lee Heaney, I like Lee Heaney. I like Lee Heaney in. Actually, I think I've only seen her in an action film because I will say uh, she's she's great at that. You know, it's like. Um, like Michelle Rodriguez sort of thing. It's just, she's naturally really good at action films. Um, I don't know if you saw it or anybody listening saw it, but she is, you know, she's phenomenal in dread and uh, mm-hmm. it's an awful, awful film, but 300 rise of an empire, her specific physical mm-hmm. action is good in it. I would say. So yeah, I was very excited. She pulled me in, but I, I will admit, you know, mainly Angela Bassett. Also uh, my mom's a librarian and I, I work at library. So I saw a librarian and I kind of, you know, there's a, a lot of small reasons that really got me going here. <laughs> but uh, okay. the director also, he looked, he looked, uh, you know, I haven't seen any of his works, but he seemed, you know, he's got some potential. Yeah. And, he's uh, done... We've done a lot of American, I think Canadian. So it was nice doing uh, Israeli director's work. Mm-hmm. Nice given, given him some, some mention or her actually. I didn't, I did not check that, but uh, it doesn't really matter. Oh, he, he, but yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> had you had you heard about it before we uh, started doing it i had seen the trailer but i admittedly kind of forgot about it yeah me too <laughs> um, it was also one of the only kind of recent ones getting a, a release that we can see on netflix mm-hmm. um the director has like this is kind of his first actiony movie his um his work so far has been kind of skewered to the horror world like he did one of the segments for one of the abcs of death anthologies yeah i noticed that and that that's a tv show too right or is it like a kind of film collection it's an anthology film yeah oh okay so yeah okay Uh, i mean it came out at the same time as like the vhs series so it was like you had the vhs anthologies and the abcs of death anthologies so I mean, one could be, <laughs> one can be understandably confused between one and the other. Um, and I think there was also like a lot of crossover between the VHS series and the ABCs of Death series. So it's, uh, everybody got a lot of work out of it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but what's really interesting, like you were saying, they're all pretty dominantly horror, whereas this, you know, had no uh, horror aspects at all. Mm-hmm. So that's good to see him, you know. Well, Buckets doing a little remix blood. of his direction. <laughs> well, what did you say? I was like, well, there, there's buckets of blood. It's it's not a horror movie, but uh, it is. There's still some horror elements, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, he does seem to be more of a kind of blood-based slasher kind of guy. Not necessarily slasher, but uh, like hostile kind of thing. You know, that kind of horror film. 
So it yeah. makes sense that he was able to harness that and use it towards an action film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, from my point of view, um, this is a movie that has some interesting ideas in it. It has some, at least two really great action sequences. Um, it has. I would say the yeah, the ones near the end. Oh no, I was thinking about the ones closer to the beginning. <laughs> oh really? Okay. I think the 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 the, uh, the action scene in the hospital where her arms are out of commission, where her arms are paralyzed, so she has the knife and tape to one hand and the gun tape to another, and she has the f- and and like the guys uh, she's fighting are like in various degrees of like medical distress as well. There's a guy on crutches and there's a guy in a wheelchair. Oh, that one. <laughs> that one is fun. Yeah. That's yeah. Again, that was a lot of fun. There was a lot of really great choreography with that one. Yeah, um, I actually uh, I thought the uh, fight near the end of the library was I, I was kind of worried that was the one you're talking about because I didn't think it was that great. I thought there was a lot of the choreography wasn't wasn't well set up. There was the one fight in particular, uh, the main character and the one male in the middle between two bookshelves, and it just it just you know he had the one swing. I swear it looked like he hit her, but like I could tell that he like didn't. So I think, you know, they should maybe <laughs> some of the stuntmans I don't think were perfect for that later scene. Um, yeah, that but, one. Uh, the one you mentioned was pretty good. I also thought for the later scenes or honestly, the film as a whole um, way too much slow, slow motion. You know, that's, yep. that's already yep. that's been done enough, I find, especially with, you know, first class. And uh, I forget the character, uh, Evan Peters, you know, all his jazz. So, mm. yeah, that was a little a little disappointing. Right. The whole thing feels like. Uh, they watched John Wick and uh, like every Tarantino, like Tarantino yeah, exactly. movies, and yeah. like uh, the director. It feels like the director was making pulp, was making John Wick, and the screenwriter was writing Pulp Fiction. Yeah, and exactly. And I would say was, for those two don't necessarily go together. Like the self awareness of of a Pulp Fiction with like the very straightforward like bone crushing action. Like the whole point of John wick is to go into these like immaculately choreographed, um, bone crushing, like action scenes that are like meticulously staged. And the thing with the library that you're getting at later on with the library, the big action, uh, sequence in the library is that it just, it lacks a total, the the total confidence of like the John wick movies where, there's really there I don't think there's any slow motion in any of the John Wick movies and that's because they have like the utmost confidence in how they are building that action and how they are delivering that action. Slow motion is kind of like a way of like like look how cool this is. You know, this yeah. is this is a cool you know, it's kind of purposely drawing attention to itself and John Wick doesn't necessarily try to draw attention to one move. It, it draws attention to an entire sequence of action and how one piece of action builds on the other. And, it, you know, it just, it's it's weird in the case of Gunpowder Milkshake because there's incredibly confident, competent action, but at the same time, there are also incredible stretches of just sort of a, a lack of confidence in the action as well. It's yeah, exactly. That those two things are functioning together in the same movie. Yeah, it was a lot of edits after as opposed to a real focus on a great choreography during the fights. Um, and and it's, it's an action film. That's, you know, kind of one of the main, uh, you know, aspects that you got to use in reviewing. And yeah, I just I, I don't think overall the fighting was phenomenal in this uh, film. Mm-mm. Yeah, like we were just discussing. So, yeah, I think overall I do want to say even though 
I'm glad Navit uh, Popa Shadow uh, got a film released, and I do like a lot of the actors. Overall, I would not recommend seeing this film. I don't know if I wouldn't recommend it. I just I I don't think you should expect much from it. Don't expect it, it to be like a real kind of one of the current special critically claimed uh, action films. You know, yeah, that it seems to be rising a little more because of John Wick, and this is not. Yeah, it doesn't them. change the game. You yeah. know, it's it's. It's uh, also not like a Steven Seagal type action film, but yeah, it's you know, it's just a, a basic, <laughs> basic one. I, I meant like when it comes to the critical, uh, he's good. At, he's he's great at his action. He's a martial. He's a black belt, right? But I just I mean when it comes it, like, to the uh, the narrative, it's it's a bit more. It's a bit better than than a lot of his. You know? Yeah, this is about. I mean, the one thing about those Steven Seagal movies is it's it, you know they're like get in, get out. Yeah, you know, eighty nine minutes. Of your court, but it's it, this is about twenty minutes too long. Yeah, uh, there's an entire sort of post um, sequence to the li- like the library fight should be the climax, and then it should end. And I feel like the movie. Out, overstays its welcome and it seems to do that purposefully to set up a potential sequel like at the end it's doing a lot of like "Ooh, you if you like this we could make more uh well, it seems like they're already <laughs> working on it yeah it's yeah, yeah um they, they were working on it before it came out officially <laughs> developed oh really did this happen before it was uh oh you're right that was announced july 6th so i guess it's very dependent on its success whether they continue with that I well, I mean, as, Netflix, uh, as the they were rankings. shooting it, they they were basically saying that they will make a sequel to this. I mean, the whole last scene is basically a sequel setup. Yeah, but that doesn't always necessarily mean it will end up being a sequel. But yeah, I guess if they've started the development on that, and I, I, the budget was not too immense. Well, it depends on the it depends on the ratings that Netflix never releases, and uh, how, yeah, how- exactly. I mean, it's it's possible um, that this won't hit as hard as they perhaps want to, but it is it is another. I mean, Netflix. I mean, Haiti will pull people in for sure. Will she? <laughs> no, I just. Oh, what you think because of the Game of Thrones finale, people aren't uh, loving Cersei as much. I just, is that I'd say I'm 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 saying some people may not be as. Um, dedicated to the lena Headley fed fan club as you are yeah i guess there's a lot of daenerys people out there uh, <laughs> just, it's, it's, i wonder uh, how they're doing <laughs> they'll be fine um <laughs> no lena Headley lena Headley is good um i She's wish a lot were... like her character in dredge she seems a little kind of on drugs and a little you know troubled yeah i i, I wish there was more of her in this it's it's so I mean, it's another another problem with pacing with the movie where we meet Lena Headey very early on, and then we have to wait till about an hour into the film before she comes back in. Yeah, they show her a decent amount of the trailer and stuff, so they they made you think she was going to be in it more. I found it was the same, um, even though I actually did love the film, Motherless Brooklyn, it was kind of the same. Bruce Willis was everywhere on the credits and the front, you know, po- uh, movie poster, but he, he's not in it. Uh, He's not in it that much. So, yeah, anybody listening, Lena Heaney is in it like an okay amount, but there is huge, like you said, there's like an hour without her 
at all. And it's just a lot of Karen Gillan. And and uh, I, I haven't. Uh, I'm not a huge fan. I didn't. Uh, she was whatever. <laughs> I, she didn't really. She didn't really have any flares. She didn't make me really care about her. Well, they didn't yeah. let her be Scottish, which is a big problem. Um, yeah, and there's no reason why she couldn't have been. Um, yeah, Lena Headey's. Uh, she's British. She could, you know. I I know they're British and Scottish aren't, uh, but she could have. I think it would have been easy for her to kind of pull one off, something like that. Well, I mean, is this a movie where we're like going around like, well, her mom is British, but she is Scottish. I don't understand <laughs> this. Like, I I just I I don't think anyone's kind of going to be doing that that no, like, no, no. geological algebra in their head. I don't think anyone cares. Yeah, it's just, Scotland also, you know, it's in the UK, so it's also very clear. They don't they don't say what city it's set in, but it's very clearly London, or it looks London. Look like the the exteriors, the wide shots of these of the city where this is set in is clearly London. Yeah, um, although the diner, the diner is so American. I guess yeah. they would have like 50s American diners. I, I don't know if in London or anywhere they would have that uh, have that much, but uh, yeah, that definitely made it seem like America. But yeah, all, yeah. The, uh, all the externals was definitely, definitely London. Maybe it was just filmed in London that they didn't think anybody would notice, but... Right, it, yeah. it's, it, it kind of feels like it's I don't know Berlin, Oklahoma, or something like it's it's we're, we're kind of American, but kind of not, and it just uh, I mean that's also where John Wick has it up on um, this movie is like John Wick has a very specific uh, setting, um, which is well for the most part New York City. The the the, the sequels do go other places, but um, there's a very specific sense of setting in that first movie, which helps and it you know just like to see people wandering around a nameless city and shooting it up it i mean it's fine um i mean the crow does that but it's it it just it it leaves something out like there's kind of really no i don't know it it just it it there's something that makes it kind of feel just very off. And again, it's because Karen, Karen Gillan's trying to do an American accent, but sometimes the Scottish leaks through. So, the, <laughs> it, you know, just I, I, I just say that like, sort of thing just happens. Scottish. Let her be Scottish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And have, and you there, know, was, yep. there was no reasoning against that. And then you have this library with the the Sisterhood of Assassins or whatever it is, where it's like, it's it's Carla uh, Gugino, Michelle Yeoh, and Angela Bassett. Yeah, and it's like, well, how do these three people come to this one place? Where is where are we? Like, how is this world? I mean, that's another big problem with this. It's like, how is this world arranged? And that's another thing that John Wick does very very well. You understand? Yeah, the, and, and it's not something you have to spend the whole film doing. You know, they could have just been no. more of in the beginning a quick discussion of what this organization is. You know, they could have handled it. Like I always think like the Kinsmen, right? Like they don't shove it in your face, the system, but they give you enough understanding for it that you can have a bit more relation and, and get what's going on, you know? Well, yeah. And you can like put it off with like a couple of lines of dialogue and you don't even need like real dialogue. Cause I think you understand the world of John Wick pretty well in that first film, even though nobody stops to explain it to you. You understand the, the, the Russian gangster and how he fits into the scheme. And then where, um, Ian McShane fits into the scheme of things and, uh, you, you know, where the, the role John Wick serves and Willem Dafoe and John Leguizamo. And it's all done very, very well, very, very smoothly, where you don't feel lost in the world. It's like, well, who are these people and who are they answering to? And 
what's with this gangster and why is Paul Giamatti like being so <laughs> like you know why is he so worried about this and who are all these white guys in his office? It's just it's <laughs> it's it's never really it's never really laid out terribly. I, I want to say. Well, but I don't think it's also not laid out very thoughtfully. It's just like... No, there's not really that much depth either to Paul Giamatti's character. No. And that's no. disappointing because he could He was, like, like, funny. His scenes were okay, but uh, I, there could have been a bit more depth to him. I don't, I don't blame him at all, though. I think he pulled it off as great as he could. I just, you know, I think the script could have focused a bit more on him. I think they cast him wrong because... I was thinking a lot about because it's also another Paul Giamatti movie with a lot of gratuitous violence, but shoot him up um, where he's just playing <laughs> completely off kilter in that movie. Um, and it's just like, he's, he's so stolid here. He's so boring. It, it's, you know, yeah, say, yeah, that's say, true. Say what you want about Giamatti and like the small role he had in amazing Spider-Man too, but like seeing uh, him in a mechanical rhino outfit as a crazy Russian prisoner, like, I mean, th- like those like two minutes of screen time are just beautiful. I don't care what anybody says I, about well, Amazing Spider-Man never, 2. <laughs> I've never watched, never watched the uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Never will. Same <laughs> for life. But um, it's good to hear that Paul Giamatti was great in it. Um, well, it's just also, I, I know this is weird, but like I said, there wasn't that much depth. And also, he's just Paul Giamatti. He's not the kind of guy who doesn't play the kind of character that would just be... Like, he could be evil, but not just, like, the basic kind of boring, just regular mob evil, you know what I mean? It just, it, it, it didn't work. I would have appreciated if his character, not even depth, had a bit more pizzazz or something, you know? Um, right. I Honestly, I wish, uh, I, I don't think, he's not an improver, but I, I think he probably shoots some of his own lines. It would have been cool if they gave him a bit more, uh, more freedom, I think. Um, and I also, I thought he was a lot better than, I, I don't know your thoughts, but the uh, other two main villains, both in Chernobyl, I wonder if there's any connection, <laughs> they weren't, uh, they were whatever, I don't know, basically, I don't, no, I don't, no, no depth. I don't think there no was depth. any connection to Chernobyl at all. Um, <laughs> I think... That we know of. <laughs> Yo, two of their main in this film? Mm, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I mean, the those guys... Uh, are kind of well. I, it it just it, it's another it's another piece of this that is just utterly disappointing. Is you know at, at least again not to com- keep going back to John Wick, but at least John Wick keeps throwing you like <laughs> compelling bad guys, even if they're just henchmen. Like if you think about Common in John Wick Two, or um, I can't remember the name of the guy in John Wick Three, but uh, even in in like. The first John Wick with Adrian Pilecki as, uh, like, one of the assassins. Like, they're just, like, memorable bad guys in these movies. And it's just, again, revisiting the earlier action scenes, too. At least the three, she calls them the boneheads. But, you know, those guys were actually kind of memorable because, I mean, they were so bad at being, like, these murderous henchmen. Yeah, they had a characteristic that, like, stood out and was a lot of fun, right? It made it more like a scene in, um, because there's other films like Kick-Ass 2 and, you know, those kinds of more comic book ones that have, you know, just just really, really, really good action, and it could have could have done it in that way. You know, it can be action as the main focus, but can still have, you know, a lot of great characters. A lot of uh, ones with more depth, like we were saying. And uh, Ralph Innocent, too, uh, from Chernobyl, he's, he's great. Like, I do think he's a really good actor. I think he's good at playing an evil guy in uh, Harry Potter, but yeah. And I think especially what bugged me is 
they made him seem like, you know, the inspector gadget, Mr. Hancock, you didn't fully see him or there was those scenes where he'd be mm-hmm. talking on his phone in the distance with his voice. So I was kind of expecting something a bit more, um, an individual more frightening or more just had more, uh, horror film characteristics or like super action characteristics. I thought he'd be a true villain, not just some, you know, kind of mob mob runner guy, or I don't know, this kind of just a lame, lame, boring dude. Yeah, it's just I, I, you, you have no stakes in it because, um, he's angry about that. Karen Gillan killed his son, but you never mm-hmm. really kind of see that, and you never understand why it's such a. And even like the end explanation where he's where he's talking to Karen Gillan, he's like, you know, I have all these daughters, and it never really got me until I had my son. It's just like, oh my <laughs> god, really? We're, this is how we're playing things. It it just it, it's like the motivation is weak, the character is weak. Uh, you know, there's kind of no memorable like characteristics about these guys. I no, mean, I, none. The one, the one that kind of sticks out to me from the final, that big final fight is like the guy with the hammer. And that's yeah. just, oh, absolutely. <laughs> only cause that's like memorably, he comes into this fight with a hammer. Um, but it, it it's, there's just, there's, it, it feels like they ran out of ideas halfway mm-hmm. through the movie. Um, which is a real shit. Cause I love those or like the, the, the cat and mouse chase in the parking garage with, uh, you know the she's still her her arms are still incapacitated, so the kid has to drive the like do the steering wheel of the car while she's controlling the gas and the brake and yeah there should have been more fun things like that and uh, just a small small aspects that add to the action but also just you know fun things uh, that they're doing yeah it's just there's a, a, you know after that sequence they catch up with Lena Headey and. It feels like she brings some energy into it, but then you start getting into these later action scenes, and it feels like it's completely run out of steam. They've run out of ideas. Um, the bad guys are all just bland. The action is bland. Um, they even have like Michelle Yeoh, who, like to this day, is you know, despite her age, is still really good fighting on screen. And I don't. I feel like she wasn't given a lot. No, I, I think I think all the librarians could have had a bit more uh, more time, even maybe some solo scenes. Angela Bassett, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It yeah. It, it it feels like, I mean, the way this the scene is set up, it feels like you know, it that here's the director making some sort of feminist statement because five women against all these men, and it, it yeah, just, it comes could have been off more librarian such, jokes too. That would have been cool. Like uh, yeah. we about to catalog you right before they like beat up the dudes or something. <laughs> I would have been okay with little, some little silly librarian <laughs> jokes, you know. I mean, yeah, it 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 could have used some more humor because I mean, Karen Gillan is is a pretty funny person, uh, well, and it's got the the visuals that usually go along with those kinds of acts. That's why I brought up uh, Kickass and um, mm. um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Those fights is because this really had a huge accentuation on the. The color palette when it comes to, I would say, what, uh, like, you know, blue, purple, uh, very similar. We were talking about similar directors to David Fincher works, right? Where he really goes to town on the saturation of his color palettes. I found it was like that for this one. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe I would say, I, I don't know about you, I would I would say a bit too much. Um, I don't know the specific colors, but it's the same kind of a heavy saturation that Bob Dylan's paintings have that are finally going up uh, for the oh, art wow. gallery and it's just 
I don't like them. I don't. It's just, it's just not for me. It's just not a, the proper colors, the saturation. I'm a contrast guy. You know what I mean? And this was just too many, too many. I, I guess blues and greens really, um, and, and purples really, really bumped up. And I, I, yeah, I just wasn't, wasn't a fan. I could say the diner thing was cool because it was purposely done to make it look like that really famous painting that's like mm-hmm. a diner in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it was just, it was just not for me. But a lot of people love Fight Club. So I, I think there's a lot of people who would enjoy the color, but I just want to say there is very noticeable um, color palette choice, and it might not be for you. I didn't mind the color. I, I, I yeah, I, okay. I, I like color. I mean, having lived through like the early aughts where everything is like black and blue and white and yeah, you know, it's, oh, it's, yeah nice, it's nice to have colors. It's nice to have reds and uh, greens and uh, some oranges. But no, it it's it. There, there's a, a struggle in the tone here. Um, it it just it seems like they couldn't really latch on to any singular idea about what to do with this world and you know what it should look like how it works what they're trying to say is it just is this like a silly kind of mother-daughter assassin action movie um is it like like a proto-feminist commentary action movie is it just like kind of silly and violent like shoot 'em up or you know they trying to start a franchise or like I, I it just it's it's all over the place and and the the longer the movie goes the more it feels kind of untied from whatever they're they think they want to do with it yeah yeah they were just it seems like they were just getting confused along the way and it was the kind of situation where the director had a maybe too broad of an idea for it it just didn't um you know direct his actions in the way that he intended in his mind you know that 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 sort of thing happens it's just so but, bizarre right because like the, the whole thing that kind of starts off the main plot is like she accidentally kills this guy who's stole money from this uh this group that paul giamatti works for and it's like because his his daughter was kidnapped and he's trying to get the ransom and it's these like four guys who are like wearing like universal monster masks which i thought was was funny because i like those masks i like those characters but um it's never kind of explained like what the deal with those guys is and like why they kidnapped that guy's daughter and why he his only option was to steal from his ruthless bosses but <laughs> yeah what, what, i think he was just maybe like a gambler or something i i have no idea but what i did like is that um instead of like taking the money back to the boss as she tries to um deliver the ransom to the girl uh to the to the the criminal so that she can get the girl back and although she has kind of like pretty good control of the situation the whole situation goes out of control because the the gangsters who kidnapped the girl turn on each other (laughs) and then results in like the money like getting blown up which you know leaves uh, the Karen Gillan character in like this really interesting lurch where it's like, well, she was trying to do the right thing and then it blows up in her face. Uh, you know, it seemed like there's something that could have come from that. But again, like the movie, it seems to be a victim of its own like inability to, 
to capitalize on some really good ideas because from there we go to the the mob hospital where we have that fight sequence into the parking garage where we have that fight sequence and then they run into Lena Heidi and um and then the like the movie kind of stalls out it's like well I don't know how we're going to finish up the next <laughs> 30 to 40 minutes of this movie but yeah we'll worry about that in the second film yeah um, it's, it's it's it just there was such promise and it just feels like it the movie ultimately over promises and under delivers. And that's like a real bitter disappointment to me because there's a a lot of stuff going for it. Yeah. What were your thoughts on like the whole daughter plot? Do you think it should have been, you know, more of a heavy plot? They should have, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. I think it was okay. I think the payoff isn't great. Like, um, well, yeah, I actually wish there had been more of, like, she's the new mother sort of thing, because it does seem like that's probably going to be the case, but it was never really uh, dealt into too deeply. Actually, it was Lena Headey asked, like, am I the grandma? And it was just a quick, nope, you're not. And then that was, you know, that was about it. Um, well, there's a couple of I'm not. I, I do feel like, oh, well, you know, she's a, a main character as a woman. doesn't mean she needs to... Uh, you know, just play a mom, but it, they kind of already did that with her being the one to you know take care of the kids. So I think, I think there could have been more of a, a connection to them in that in that way, just just more depth in general to uh, well, there's, there's the daughter's reaction to what's going on. There's kind of no emotional payoff to any of it though, because exactly the, the movie could have gone in one of two directions, which is that Lena Headey could have been the grandmother to the the young girl Emily in a way that. She was not a mother to the Karen Gillan character, or um, at the end, the Karen Gillan character says that he makes the decision that she's going to be the mother that her mother wasn't to her, and that she will be that mother to Emily. Yeah. Um, where you kind of get that that emotional, you get those emotional stakes, and you get that emotional payoff. But what the movie decides at the end is like, nope, we're all going to drive off together and we'll, we'll figure out for the next movie instead of like yeah. having a, an emotional payoff that, um, you know, the, the script clearly is trying to set up because they, they, it clearly has this idea in its head that there's this um, emotional through line about abandonment and mother-daughter relations and it really doesn't do anything with it. It just, you know, they meet up with Lena Headey, they, they exchange a few words, and then we're into an escape sequence, which leads to an action sequence, and then leads to the end of the movie. And it, it, there's just kind of no payoff to the fact that the whole through line for the first part of this movie is that this woman, played by Karen Gillan, was abandoned by her mother for years, ends up finding herself in the same sort of predicament that her mother does, or that her mother did, um, and how does that affect her and how does she make decisions differently so that she's not abandoning a little girl the same way she's, she was abandoned. Um, it, it seems like the filmmakers didn't really understand their own script, which is mm-hmm. always a problem. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I'd really be curious if they were able to, for the sequel, you know, if they're going to firm up any of those aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's too bad. Cause I'm just looking now. I, I, I didn't know Karen Gillan is, you know, she's in Guardians of the Galaxy and everything. I, I now you didn't know Karen Gillan was do, in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Well, no, no. I like no. I've known for a few days now, but not you know. Um, <laughs> honestly, I'm I'm yeah I'm out of touch really with the, with the MCU. I got to get back on that. But uh, so that explains why they had her as a lead for an action. But uh, that also to me makes it even more a little more disappointing. You know, knowing that she's 
had Disney's help with uh, being an action character, you know, co-star. Uh, I thought maybe she could have done a bit of a better job for uh, no longer co-star in action, just full star, you know. But as we were talking, a lot of the issues was just a messy plot and that, you know, we, we can't push that all onto her. You know? No, and, I don't. And I thought like her. I was very. I was. Uh, I. I think she. At least for a, a lot of the smaller ones, she does her own stunts, right? And then, and that was that was cool. I think she did a good job on that. And I think, I think she did a good job portraying her character, even though her character isn't really someone who's fun to be portrayed, to view a portrayal of. No, it's a bad character. The, the faults in the movie are not hers. No, They're, no, no. She she's let down but by. She also doesn't say it in the film. Oh no! But I mean, that's kind of the character is that she's. Um. Anyway, it it just there's um. I'm actually okay with the movie. It's an okay movie that I will probably not watch again. But uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't. I don't even know if I'd even use the word okay. I'll I'll say it's a decent at best film. Yeah, if you're just kind of looking for something random on Netflix to watch, it's fine. It's not really appointment viewing, but... Um, yeah, maybe to uh, just like one of those like, kind of background films I think some people do. If they got kind of a living room open to the kitchen or whatever, you can just do that. Right, it, it, but at the, at the same time, um, I acknowledge that this thing had all the ingredients to have been so much better. And there are occasional indications that there was greatness inside this movie that the director and the screenwriter couldn't get out of their own way to realize. And it could have been, it could have been so much better, but um, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We'll <laughs> see. Uh, we'll see what Navit Pupashado has uh, to come. Yeah. I would be interested in like, in looking at some of his, uh, his previous films to see, um, if if maybe his talents are in horror, sometimes that's yeah uh, yeah exactly. But I mean, also the, the I feel I feel this is a good place to leave it off. Uh, what does the title mean? Gunpowder milkshake. <laughs> that was never really explained. Like I can understand. No. I can understand if it was like a reference in the movie. Like gunpowder milkshake is like a code for something. Yeah, I guess it's because um. The diner was kind of a heavy part, but I don't know if it was heavy enough for it to, you know, uh, give an addition to the title. Well, again, what it would have been interesting if the diner had uh, maybe the diner was called Gunpowder Milkshake, but you never see a sign for the <laughs> diner. But I mean, that would have been interesting. It's like, welcome to Gunpowder Milkshake. And, you know, it's like I can't remember the name of the diner in Pulp Fiction, but I mean, that would have been at least something interesting. Yeah, exactly. They could have done that. Yeah. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Yeah. Peter, where can people find you on the internet, even though Yo, you're in Ottawa now? As pre... <laughs> um, uh, TikTok, Peter West and Sam, my full name, and then Mr. Towerack on YouTube and Twitter. And that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it, and if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website, endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean. Or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you choose to listen to the show on Spotify, you can also find a playlist for most of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just search for End Credits on CFRU in your Spotify app. 
You can find us on social media as well. We're on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back tomorrow at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can go to my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, and we will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits, and we will see you then. Thank you.